This morning, uh, we are finishing up our look at the letter, or as we called it last week, the postcard, because it's a very short letter uh, written by Jude to one of the churches uh, in the ancient world, probably in Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey, kind of north of Israel, which is where all the missionaries went up and then across and then back down, uh, if you look at it on the map. got Israel, Asia Minor, and then across to Macedonia and Greece down the side there uh, to the west. Uh, now, it's written by this guy uh, called Jude, uh, who you remember changed his name or had his name changed for him twice because his birth name is Judah, but then he was also called Judas. And then uh, because Judas is a bad guy, uh, they changed his name to Jude. So, uh, and all I can think about is, hey, Jude, right? That's what I told. I said last week, na, 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 na. That's all. And so I went home listening to that song last week. I was like, I've got to hear, hear this song. And anyway, I, didn't, I forgot that song is like 10 minutes long. And the most, the most of it at, at the end is that part where they're just singing, na, 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 na. And then Paul McCartney screaming out the name of Jude. I'm like, wow, that's great. Um, but one thing that I love about Jude, the guy who wrote this letter, even before we get into his letter, one thing I love about him is his humility. Okay, and this is probably the first lesson that we can take from him because he's technically Jesus' brother or Jesus' half-brother, but he doesn't claim that for himself, right? He doesn't claim, hey, guys, I'm Jesus' brother. You need to listen to me, right, because I know Jesus better than anyone except for his other brothers, Um he, he doesn't even uh, make that claim. He doesn't even call himself a, a friend of Jesus or anything like that. He calls himself, and this is a good translation, the NASB, uh, calls himself a bond servant or a slave of Jesus Christ. You know, it's his older brother, and every older brother wishes that their younger siblings would say this, you know. I am Jude, a slave of Jesus Christ, right? It's like my brother introducing himself as Christopher, a slave of Jason. I'd be like, yes. That's right. He doesn't claim to be that. He claims to be a slave of Jesus and the brother of James. And uh, James is his older brother, who you remember from last week as well when we looked at it. He's the first listed, so he's the second born after Jesus. Uh, James, Joseph, Judas, that's Jude, and Simon. Okay, And it's awesome uh, that he's just content with being known as James's brother and a slave of Jesus. He doesn't really play up his family dynamic because James was a, a really um, influential leader in the church. He was uh, the bishop or the leader of the church in Jerusalem, and he was one of the people who came up with They had the first church conference in Acts chapter 15, which would have been really cool to be at, right? I'd pay a lot of money to go to that church conference because all the apostles were there, and uh, Paul was there, and Barnabas, and all those guys, and they brought together this council because... Uh, Paul had been preaching to the Gentiles and he'd been saying, like, it doesn't matter if you follow the Jewish law or not, you can still be, you know, a Christian, be saved, be adopted into God's family. And some of the Jews that called Judaizers, they were really upset about this. So they brought the whole count, the whole church together in Jerusalem and they had this council. And James is the one, James, brother of Jude and Jesus, and who wrote the book of James, is the one who stands up and, uh, and responds in Acts 15. So after they, that's Paul and Barnabas, stopped speaking, James, the brother of Jesus, Jude, and the writer of the book of James, stands up and speaks. So he's the spokesperson for the church. So this is Jude's 
brother. Now, I know that um, younger siblings, if, if you're a younger sibling, I know I'm not. I'm the oldest, and I know as I was going through school, as the oldest, you just by default the icebreaker for the world, for your family, right? So when you go to school, you are the first person from your family that everyone else encounters. You are the tip of the spear, and that's just how it is. So my brother growing up two years behind me in school was always like first day of roll call, you know, in his new class. Uh, Christopher Heal, uh, yes. Oh, are you, are you Jason's brother? Are you Jason's brother? And he got so sick of it. He's like, yes, yes, you know, 13 years of being Jason's brother. And he just wanted, fair enough, to have his own identity uh, and grow up and just be known as himself, you know, um, which is fair enough. He wants to be his own person, doesn't want to be Jason's brother for the rest of his life. And I don't think he is now, which is great. I, I wouldn't want that for him. Um, but I love how Jude is not like that. He's like, yeah, I'm James's brother. That's me. And I think he uses it a little bit because it gives him some power because of who James is, right? I think if you have, like, the prime minister or the president or the CEO of a company as your brother, like, my, my kids do this to um, their uncle all the time. He owns a business, a cafe, and uh, we sometimes go out there and they're like, oh, my uncle owns this place, so give me free food, you know? <laughs> So, so that's, that's kind of what he's doing, right? He's like, oh, my brother's James. He's the leader of the church in Jerusalem. You guys should listen to me because of that. But, um, but he's, he's humble about it, but he's not gentle, right? That's the thing we're going to find as we get into this letter. And we're going to read the whole letter again this week because I think it's very important for us to get the context and the overall understanding and the flow of the letter and, and to listen to what he has to say. And so what we're going to do is we're going to pray, and then we're going to read this letter. And I want you to imagine, like we did last year, that uh, last week, that it's written to us, that I have got this letter from Jude, and he sent it to me in the mail, and he's like, Jason, you need to read this to the church. Okay, we're going to do that. We're going to pretend that. So let's pray. Lord Jesus, um, we are just grateful for your word. We are grateful for uh, your brother Jude, who was faithful to you and uh, listened to what you had to say and wrote down the words that you had for him to write down so that we could uh, listen and reflect on these 2,000 years later. And so we just ask that you would speak to us uh, by your word today. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so here we go. 600 words from the Bible to us. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James, to those who are the called, loved by God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Dear friends, although I was eager to write to you about the salvation we share, I found it necessary to write, appealing to you to contend for the faith that was delivered to the saints once for all. For some people who were designated for this judgment long ago have come in by stealth. They are ungodly turning the grace of our God into sensuality and denying Jesus Christ, our only Master and Lord. Now, I want to remind you, although you came to know all these things once and for all, that Jesus saved a people out of Egypt and later destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not keep their own position but abandoned their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains and deep darkness for the judgment on the great day. Likewise, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns committed sexual immorality and perversions and serve as an example by undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. 
In the same way, these people, relying on their dreams, defile their flesh, reject authority, and slander glorious ones. Yet when Michael, the archangel, was disputing with the devil in an argument about Moses' body, he, he did not dare utter a slanderous condemnation against him, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme anything they do not understand. And what they do understand by instinct, like irrational animals, by these things, they are destroyed. Woe to them, for they have gone the way of Cain, have plunged into Balaam's error for profit, and have perished in Korah's rebellion. These people are dangerous reefs at your love feasts, as they eat with you without reverence. They are shepherds who only look after themselves. They are waterless clouds carried along by winds, trees in late autumn, fruitless, twice dead, and uprooted. They are the wild waves of the sea, foaming up their shameful deeds, wandering stars for whom the blackness of darkness is reserved forever. It was about these that Enoch, the seventh generation from Adam, prophesied, Look, the Lord comes with tens of thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly concerning all the ungodly acts that they have done in an ungodly way and concerning all the harsh things ungodly sinners have said against him. These people are discontented grumblers, living according to their desires. Their mouths utter arrogant words, flattering people for their own advantage. But you, dear friends, remember what was predicted by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They told you in the end time there will be scoffers living according to their own ungodly desires. These people create divisions and are worldly, not having the Spirit. But you, dear friends, as you build yourselves up in your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting expectantly for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ for eternal life. Have mercy on those who waver. Save others by snatching them from the fire. Have mercy on others with fear, hating even the garment defiled by the flesh. And now to him who is able to protect you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory without blemish, And with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, power, and authority before all time, now and forever. Okay, wow, there we go. Amen. Um, I really like the way that Jude structures his letter. It's really interesting. He starts out by writing to those who are at the church. He says, you know, this is Jude, slave of Jesus, brother of James to the church, the beloved, and then he spends the whole middle section of the letter, uh, the mo- most of the part of the letter, writing against the people who have crept in. And then he finishes by encouraging the people that he's writing to and, and, and giving them exhortation and conduct and behavior so they can um, kind of be victorious in the struggle that's happening. And so it's kind of like this, I'd say, not so much like a sandwich, but more like a triple cheeseburger, Right, So he's got the bun, which is the encouragement at the top, then like three layers of meat, which is all of this writing against the, the, the bad guys who have crept in, the, the spiritual ninjas, right? We called them last week. And then he's got the bun of encouragement at the, at the end. Um, and so it's massive um, middle bit there. And he, he's, he's talking about these people... come back. There we go. That's interesting. Have abused the grace of God. And that's 
what he says, what they've done. They've abused the grace of God, and they've used it, God's grace, his unmerited favor, his forgiveness, the thing that he, uh, he's done for us on the cross. He's, they're using that as a reason to sin. And you remember we called that last week cheap grace, right? Coining the phrase that Dietrich Bonhoeffer coined in, um, in the 1930s, cheap grace, because they have cheapened God's grace that cost him his son. That's the first thing they did. The second thing they did by doing that is that they denied the authority of Jesus as their Lord and Master. So instead of bowing their knee to Jesus as the ultimate authority, and you remember we talked last week about how the confession, the first Christian creed was that Jesus is Lord, Kyrios Iesos. Uh, and we looked at those verses in Romans that says, if you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, the ultimate final authority, then you will be saved. And they denied that authority by turning God's grace that saved them into a reason to do whatever they want. So that was his warning last week. That's the big middle thing. And he uses all sorts of examples there. He uses examples from the Old Testament, from uh, legend and from myth and from history and all of these different things to point out what these sorts of people are like. He uses metaphors and similes and all this stuff, word pictures and all of these things to show the kind of life that these people are living. And so that's what we spent last week on. And this week, we are going to look at the other people that he's talking about here. And uh, so he calls those people the beloved. Okay, so if you look at uh, verse here, verse 20, it says, but you, beloved, building yourselves up in the most holy faith. He says that in verse 17 as well. Um, and in verse 1, he calls them Jude, servant of Jesus Christ, brother of James, to those who are called beloved in God the Father. Okay, so that's what he calls them, the beloved. So there's the others, which he deals with in most of the letters, and then there's the beloved, these two groups of people that he sets up. And so we're going to look at what he says about the beloved, and then what he says about how the beloved can build themselves up and do this whole contesting for the faith thing that he's talking about. So... We're going to look at the beloved, and just in case you're wondering, like, that's us, okay? That's those of us who, who follow Jesus, who love Jesus, who are saved by Jesus. And he gives us some um, identity statements at the start. And what I love about this letter is that um, Jude was compelled um, by God's Spirit to write. Okay, so he had this, uh, he had this you, you know, at the start there, he had this plan to write just a basic letter of, like, how's it going? How you doing? You know, here's some things you could do. But God's Spirit compelled him to write to them to contend, to wrestle for the faith, right? And that sort of wrestling is the wrestling that you see at the Olympics, which are going to be starting soon. That kind of on the floor, really grappling, like strength contest, not like the flashy WWE wrestling, right? Not like all that throwing and jumping and kicking and stuff, but the on the ground, like you are trying to pin this other person down and they're using all their strength to get out from under you, that sort of contest. So that's how he sees this contest of faith that we are in. And he wants us to not only be able to survive and stand our ground, but be able to push back against those people who are trying to, um, to wrestle us down and cheapen the grace of God and deny the authority of Jesus. And so the first question that we're going to ask is, who are we? And Jude gives us three identity statements here in the first uh, verse, two verses. 
And uh, Jude uses a lot of threes in these verses, okay? So he says, those who are called, loved by God, kept for Jesus. And if you read Jude again, you'll see that he uses this a lot. It's like one of those things that you can't unsee once you see. Because in verse 2, he says, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. So all throughout, you'll see, um, even in his descriptions of the others, how he uses these triplets, all right? And so the first thing that he says to about us is that we are the called ones. We are called. Now, that, is, that means that God has called us out. He has marked us out. He has, in the same way, he's selected and chosen and called us out, in the same way that he did for the people of Israel. In the Old Testament, when God chose a people for himself from amongst the world, he chose Abraham and his descendants, and he called them out. And that's what he has done for us. This is not a general, like, invitation that he sends out like there's the general invitation that is you know if you want to be saved come and believe in Christ and there's that general invitation but this is the what we might call the effectual call of God to um, to draw a people to himself this is the sort of thing that Jesus talks about in John's gospel when he says no one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. So it's more specific than a general, you know, hey, if you want to come, come, feel free, or don't come, whatever. It's an intentional calling and drawing, like, hey, you specifically come and be saved, enter into a relationship with me. And it marks us out as God's children, that God is doing a work in our lives. He's molding us and shaping us and setting us apart. You remember in the I am statements that we looked at earlier, and Jesus talks about how he's the gate. And there's these two flocks. There's the flock of God and the flock of not God, everyone else. And he talks about that. And that's what we're talking about here. God has called us for his flock, which for me is so encouraging, right? We are called out. And then we are and set apart. And then we are beloved. And I missed out that one on my PowerPoint here. Beloved of God. Um. And so, as I said before, it says, to those who are called beloved in God the Father. And so it's the love of God that calls us and draws us. It's not just God's arbitrary, random choice. It's his love for us, right? Monica said before that God could just be this arbitrary, angry God who does whatever he wants and chooses to be nasty, but he doesn't. He loves us, and he acts out of that love and compassion to call us and to draw us towards him. His desire for our own good, regardless of what it cost him, is motivating that. And you remember, it cost him a lot. cost him his son. And we're going to take communion at the end of the message this morning. We're going to reflect on that and remember that so that we don't cheapen God's grace, which was a challenge to us last week. And I think it's still something that we struggle with today in our modern world, to think that someone would love another person so much that they would just give up their life for that person. That's why in all these movies, like, the ultimate thing that a hero can do for someone is take a bullet for them, right? Because no one does that. Why would you do that? That's insane, right? But that's what God does, not just for one person, but for every single person that's ever lived. And that's what those elements are about, and that's what we're going to reflect on this morning. But it means that because God loves us, 
And when we step into that love and we live out of that love, when we sit in God's love, we meditate on his love, we are assured of our relationship with him. We are called to be his own. We are cared for and treasured by God. And we understand the love of God for us. And for some reason, I don't know why, I've got it in my notes here, but it's not in my slide. Romans eight thirty-eight to 39 is the description that Paul writes of this love. So I'll read it to you. And if you you'll be familiar with it. Um, it says, For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in, that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So we are beloved in God with that sort of love that nothing can separate us from. And then thirdly, we're kept. We're kept in Jesus Christ, by Jesus Christ. This means, again, looking back to the I am statements, Jesus is the good shepherd who guards his flock. And what a privilege it is to think that Jesus is the one who guards our souls. Jesus is the one who keeps watch over us, that he is there, we are in his hands, and nothing can take us out of his hands. We are kept for him. And he says, My sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. Right? How encouraging is that? No one will snatch them out of my hand. Jesus keeps us. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. Jesus watches over us. He guards us. He keeps us. So that's where we are. That's how Jude describes us, right? We are called, set apart, selected, chosen, invited by God. We are beloved by him with the love that he lays down his life for us. And then we are kept and guarded by him. So that's who we are. But how can we build our endurance to contend for the faith against these others that are the middle of this whole letter that we looked at last week. Well, Jude tells us uh, four things, four things, there we go, four things, Um, and we're going to go through them pretty quickly, but he gives us a clue in Jude uh, verses 20 and 21. But you, dear friends, or beloved, okay, so some translations have dear friends, others have beloved, as you build yourselves up in your most holy faith, Praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting expectantly for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ for eternal life. And then he goes on to say, have mercy on those who are perishing, save others by snatching them, and have mercy on them. So we're to have mercy with the mercy that God has shown us, we're to show others that same mercy. The first thing we do is build ourselves up in our most holy faith. Now, just quickly talking about faith, he's not talking about our belief in Christ, okay? That's not the sort of faith, you know, by grace you have been saved through faith, not that sort of faith. He's talking about when he says you are to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. He's talking about the faith as in the rule of faith, the set of beliefs that the that Jesus gave to the apostles and that the apostles taught to the church. That's what he's talking about, to build ourselves up, to wrestle with, to come to understand the teaching of the apostles so that we can guard against those uh, others who would come into the church. And so what he's saying is to, uh, 
uh, to devote ourselves to that, like they did in the first church, where it says in Acts 2.42, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. So they, they gave themselves over to it. They sat every day with the apostles and they listened. They're like, tell us more about Jesus. Tell us how Jesus would have us live. Tell us what Jesus said. And so the apostles are expounding on the life of Jesus and teaching them to do it. So um, how do we do it? Because we don't have the apostles around to go and talk to them. Like, hey, Peter, you know, we don't even have his grave. We don't know where he's buried. Can't go and ask his bones or anything like that, right? Unless... Well, I'm sure there's some churches around that think they've got the relics, you know, nose of John or something like that. I always remember Blackadder, the TV series, where he becomes the Archbishop of Canterbury and he goes into the business of selling relics. It's really interesting. Just a really funny satire of the church. Um, We don't have any relics that we can go and talk to, right? So how do we get the apostles teaching? Well, for us, it's the Scripture It's the Bible. It's the teaching that the apostles wrote down for us, guided by the Holy Spirit, that they passed on what Jesus had said. Paul even says in 1 Corinthians 11, which we're going to read this morning, he says, For I delivered to you that which I received from the Lord. Jesus reveals these things to the apostles, and they pass it on to us, and we need to wrestle with it and understand it because it is uh, good for us. Paul encourages the elders in Ephesus as he's on his final journey to Jerusalem and then on to Rome. Now I commit you to God and to the word of his grace. That word is able to build you up and to give you an inheritance among all who are sanctified. He continues to tell us uh, that all scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness so that the man of God or woman of God it's a gender-neutral term there, may be complete, equipped for every good work, right? So it completes us, you know, like the old uh, Jerry Maguire, you complete me, right? God's Word brings us to completion as uh, children of God. So we need to wrestle with the Word. We need to get in there and understand it and really uh, contend with it so that we, we embody it and it becomes part of who we are and we live it out. The second thing is that we are to pray in the Holy Spirit. So we build ourselves up in the faith by reading the Word and by wrestling with it, asking questions, discussing, trying to figure out what the apostles are saying and Jesus is saying to us through the, the Word of the apostles. And then we pray in the Holy Spirit. Now, this doesn't mean uh, praying in a particular way. It means praying in the power of the Holy Spirit, praying in accordance and in line with the Spirit's will for us, allowing the Spirit to guide and direct our prayers. Because Jude understands that our battles not necessarily or not even primarily won through logic and reason and arguments because if you've ever had a discussion with someone and you present them with uh, reasoned facts and figures, it's very easy for them to say, ah, whatever, you know, you're a conspiracy theorist or something like that. Jude understands what Paul articulates for us in Second Corinthians Chapter 10, verses 3 and 5. For although we live in the flesh, we do not wage war according to the flesh. Since the weapons of our warfare are not the flesh, but are powerful through God for demolishing strongholds. He's talking about prayer, right? In uh, Ephesians chapter 6, where Paul lists all of the spiritual uh, armor of God, right? The thing that he has at the end, which is like the major weapon, is to pray always. In the spirit, 
right? Uh, For we demolish arguments and every proud thing that is raised up against the knowledge of God. We're every proud thing that is raised up against the knowledge of God, and we take every thought captive to obey Christ. So that's what it means to pray in the Holy Spirit. And the third thing, keep yourself in God's love. And we go back to the I am statements again. John chapter 15, I am the true vine. Abide in me as I abide in my Father. Jesus says later on in verses 9 to 11, he says, As the Father has loved me, I also have loved you. Remain in my love. Then he says, How do we remain in your love, Jesus? Well, if you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. So that's how we remain in the love of God, by keeping his commands, by doing the things that he asks, by acknowledging as the others that we looked at last week don't, by acknowledging that Jesus is Lord and Master. And then he goes on to verse uh, to say, then the next verse on the next slide, he says, I have told you these things so that my joy may be in you and your joy may be complete. So what does he say? It's interesting. I think it's interesting that Jesus says we obey his commands. That's how we remain in his love. And if we remain in his love, our joy will be complete. And then Jude, in one of the most famous benedictions at the end of his book here, says that God is able to present us before his throne without blemish and with great joy, right? That our joy may be complete. There is joy to be had, deep, abiding, satisfying joy to be had when we remain in the love of Christ. And then the last thing that we need to do is wait for the mercy of Jesus to bring about eternal life. Now, this means that we are looking to the future hope and glory, right? That's what we hope in. We don't hope in uh, anything in this world. Our hope is in the next world. But it doesn't mean that, uh, I don't know if you've heard that saying, some people are so heavenly-minded that they're no earthly good, right? That's not what we want to do. We don't want to be those people who are just, I don't know if you've ever known them, but they're always thinking about, oh, man, when we get to the new world, when we get to heaven, when we see Jesus face-to-face, it's going to be so good, and this world is so boring, and they're just kind of ticking off the minutes until they get to see Jesus. You know, they're just kind of going, yeah, okay, well, another minute's passed. Oh, come on, Jesus, where are you? I want to see you, you know? And you kind of wonder, well, what are you, what are you doing here? They're too heavenly-minded to be any earthly good. We don't want to be those people who are trying to escape from the world. We want, to be, uh, we want to affirm the world in the sense that the world is created by God, that he created it good, that he created it for us to enjoy and to steward, and we can enjoy going and standing in the sun on a day like today and just breathing in and breathing out and praising God, that we can go uh, to the beach on a sunny day in summer and just soak up the sun and just thank God for his grace that we have to go to the bush and to go on a bushwalk or on a hike or, or go up, to the, up the mountains, go to the snow and just enjoy creation as God made it, to do our work with our hands and recognize that God is present with us wherever we go, that he made us for him and he with us fulfills us in the world. But then we also, so we affirm the world in that sense, in that the way that it relates to God and the create and us and God and the creation relate together. But then we're also world denying. We live in this tension, right? That we want to affirm the good things about the world, but we want to recognize that although it's wonderful and glorious and beautiful, it's still broken and fallen and it's not our ultimate home. 
It's not the end goal, right? The end point for us is not to live in this world forever, you know, to upload our consciousness into some computer and just exist forever. That's not what it is. Our end home is the new heaven and the new earth. We recognize that God is present here with us in the stuff of every day, but we also recognize that when we pass from this life into the next, we'll pass from death to life, to eternal life, to the new heaven and the new earth. We will live forever with Christ. And so that's what Jude encouraged his readers to do, and that's what he encourages us to do, to remind ourselves that we are called, loved, and kept, and that we are to build ourselves up in our understanding of the faith, because what you believe comes out in how you live. And so we want to form ourselves internally, our beliefs, so that it comes out in the right actions. So we build ourselves up. We pray in the Holy Spirit. We um, wait for the mercy of God, and we keep ourselves abiding in God's love.